Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's workmanship, his masterpiece. I don't know about you, but when I get up in the morning and look in the mirror, I don't really see a, a masterpiece, you know? I mean, maybe a Picasso. It's like, <laughs> but I want to be his masterpiece. I want to be everything he created me to be. And so I go to him in prayer and I say, dear heavenly father, do whatever it takes to mold me into the image of your son. Make me your masterpiece. In Jesus name I pray. Amen. Hi. Whoa. Who are you? I'm God. You said the prayer, so here I am. You're not God. No, I am. You said the prayer. That's how it works. Okay, okay. If you're God, then uh, make it snow in here. You know what? I really don't want to make it snow in here because it'd get kind of yucky. Yeah, you're not God. Why do you say that? God wouldn't say yucky. I do. It's a Greek word. Oh. Okay, okay. Um, if you're God, what does Lamentations 15.9 say? Lamentations is only five chapters. It's a very short book. Oh. Why was it so short? I was tired of lamenting. Oh. Okay, okay. If you're God, who's going to win the World Series this year? I'm really not into playing games. Why are you so much into playing games? You are God. What gave it away? You answered my question with a question. I did? <laughs> yeah, I do that. Don't I? I did it again. <laughs> Step right up. Here we go. Okay. All right. Hey, what are we doing? I'm going to make you my original masterpiece. This is the process. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. Wait, wait. What are these about? These are the tools I'm going to use to make you into my original masterpiece. Okay. Yeah. Hang on. Yeah. I thought you were a carpenter. That's my son. Step right up. Here we go. Okay. Oh, hey, God. Mm -hmm. How do you know what to chisel away and what to leave? I take out everything in your life that doesn't belong there, kind of like dead weight. Ooh, speaking of dead weight, could you chisel right here? It showed up when I was in my 20s and grew around and became back fat. I don't even know why you created that, but I can't get rid of it. I mean, I've tried everything. Like, I tried running. I tried lifting weights. My wife actually talked me into trying Pilates. That was awkward. But I can't get rid of it. So if you would just chisel around here, and then, you know what, if you chisel a line right here and maybe... Four to five, maybe eight lines right here. That would be awesome. You're funny. You made me that way. I also made the platypus. The platypus? All I'm saying is most of my children, when it comes to this process, they just want to talk, but they don't want to do the work. So do you want to talk or can I chisel? Talk, chisel. No, talk, no, chisel. no, 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 no. I choose to chisel. All right. Through my Holy Spirit, I'm going to bring up things in your life that I want you to work on. Like your anger. I created the emotion, but you use it in the wrong way. Um, you compare yourself to others instead of me. You tell little white lies because you want to people please. You're lazy. But you try to fool everybody by looking really, really busy. You have a problem with lust. Well, time out. <laughs> I don't really have a problem with lust. You don't have a problem with lust. No, I can do it anytime I want. Hang on a second. I mean, I, I got to admit, I, I feel like you've been doing some great work and I'm looking pretty good right now. All right. When you look in the mirror, who do you see? I see me. Okay. Then I need to keep chiseling away because ultimately you and other people need to see my son. Okay. Don't misunderstand me. It's just um, when I look more like Jesus, people get uncomfortable around me. I mean, even my church friends and they're like, oh, you're holier than thou, you know, and, and I, don't, I don't think I'm supposed to make people uncomfortable. So what you're saying is you'd rather play God in certain areas of your life than for me to be God over your whole life. That is not what I said. It's what you meant. Yes, it is. Um, 
It's hard to talk to you. You know everything that I'm thinking. I'm just saying you've done some great work. Maybe we take a break, a sabbatical from each other, you know. I'll stay right here and then, you That's know. That's just it. You never just stay right there. You're either moving toward me or away from me, but never you just stay. What you're doing is called control. Do you want to control things or life or can I chisel? Control, chisel, control, no, chisel. No, chisel, chisel. All right. But can we chisel where I want? That's called control. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Now this right here, this secret sin that you keep running to whenever you're hurting, angry, lonely, tired, that you think you're fooling everybody, but it's making you a whitewashed tomb. Are you ready for me to chisel this out of your life? Yeah. See, it's a process. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's your whole life. And you care so deeply about what other people think of you. It's rubbish. It's garbage. The greatest thing you're ever going to hear is at the end of your life, when you hear me say, well done, good and faithful servant, that's what you keep your eye on. That's the prize. Heavenward. That hurts. Oh, trust me, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Right. Okay. I'm sorry. I just, I don't think you understand this pain. Pardon me? You're asking me to sacrifice a lot, God. Don't talk to me about sacrifice. I know all about sacrifice. I sent my son to die on the cross for pain, for sin, but I also did it for another reason to give you freedom. Do you know what insanity is? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results. And there are things that you've been doing for years. These empty wells that don't have anything to offer. You've been going to them and it's insane. Allow me to chisel them out of your life. Um, allow me to produce character where you keep focusing so much on your image. Okay, but I was thinking. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. Okay, but if we went another way. Your ways can... are not oh, my ways. I can't. You can't what? I, I, I can't be good. That's your excuse. That's your excuse is that you can't be good. It's not an excuse. I can't. Oh, my child. In the beginning, I said it was good. I made you good. Be good. Yeah. But you and I both... What? Nothing. No, what is it? Nothing, okay? You wouldn't understand. I, God of all the universe, wouldn't understand something one of my children has to say. Try me. It's just, um, I let you down so many times, God. No, my child. You were never holding me up. I hold you up with my victorious, righteous right hand. Never the other way around. In this relationship, I hold you up. chisel away but just just be prepared for what you're going to find in there because I know who's inside there because I get up every morning and I look at him in the mirror and I hate who I see because deep inside there this 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 little kid who gets up every morning and dresses like an adult and I go out and I, and I, I try to do what I'm supposed to do but I can't Okay? I can't be who everybody else expects me to be. God, I can't even be who I want to be, much less who you created me to be. And so inside is this scared, stupid little kid. But you chisel away. Just be prepared. You have listened to so many voices for far too long that were not for me. 
And you have totally bought into the lie, haven't you? You think you're junk, don't you? When you lay your head down at night after you've done the dance to get the hug, you think you're junk. Listen to me. I don't take time to make junk. How can I show you that my love for you stretches as far as the east to the west? That How can I show you that my love for you has no end? I know. Reach in your back pocket. What? Reach in your back pocket. Why? Are you arguing with me? Reach in your back pocket. Oh, God. Yes? I just meant, God, I'll do that right now. You're just saying my name in vain. Come on. It's, it's a name. It's a saying. It's a name above all names. It's more than a saying. It's more than a name. I want to teach you something about my name. Reach in your back pocket. that is? Yeah, it's a, uh, it, it's a note. I, I wrote it when I was in college. How did you get this? Hello? Oh, yeah. Go ahead, read it. I love Angie. Other side. Sorry. Dear God, did I hear you right today? Did I hear you say You and I both know I've messed up so many times. Did I hear you say you want to use me? And I feel so useless. If you'll take me and use me, then God, I give you all that I am. Take me. I love you, God. I love you too. And I love you too much just to leave you where you're at. This salvation that you hold, I don't want it to be some sentimental gush or some head knowledge. I want you to work it out in every detail of your life. And when problems come and chaos happens, don't look at this as a prison, but look at it as a father disciplines his child. A father disciplines the ones he loves. I know, but it's going to be tough. Yes, but you bought into the lie thinking everything was going to be easy when you gave everything over to me. There will be trouble in this world. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. I want you to do something. I want you to look out there and I want you to say, Tommy is God's original masterpiece. Tommy is God's... No, not the way you see yourself or you try so desperately for others to see you. But maybe for the first time in your life... The way I see you, the way I created you. Tommy is God's original masterpiece. Yes, you are. And so are you. God doesn't make junk. You are an original masterpiece. This video that I showed today, I've shown it before, but it came up in our small group last week, and I thought, okay, this is something. We have one more, uh, uh, one more s sermon in this series next week, but I thought this was a great thing to do today. And let me just give you a couple of things real quickly from this that, that stuck out to me. He says, would you rather play God in certain areas of your life 
or let me be God in all areas of your life. I thought that was incredibly significant. We want to tell God what he's supposed to do in our lives. We don't want to listen to what God has to do. It doesn't work that way. When you call him Lord, that's a capital L. By the way, I heard that there's a church in, uh, in Sweden that is banning their, their ministers from saying Lord uh, and Master because that's too masculine for God. I'm like, you're going to have to ignore the scripture because that's what the scripture calls him. Anyway, um, so when God's God, he gets to do whatever he says. Now, here's the, here's the next thing. Um, you never stay in one place in the Christian life. I love that statement. And put that up there if you would, Travis. I had to see who, if, who was back there. Travis. This is a people mover, mover, people mover in an airport. And I don't know if you've ever been on one. I get on them. I walk fast anyway. When I walk fast on one of these people movers, I'm hauling. You would have to run. You would have to sprint to keep up with me. Even if you just stand still on the people mover in an airport, and it's usually because you're going about half a mile or so, and they don't have long enough ones. Anyway, if you get on it and you just move, if you just stand still, people cannot walk and keep up with you. So here's the deal. In the Christian life, let's see this one guy coming on this side. In the Christian life, we're called to go against the flow. It is, it is what we do. Everything in the world system is designed to keep you from getting closer to God. So if this thimble represents your life and we put this thimble on this one going towards that guy, he's coming towards us. It takes a, an incredible amount of effort to go against the flow. What happens to this little thimble or you if you're walking that way? How many of you, by the way, have gone up and down escalator or down and up? You know? What happens when you stop, when you're going the opposite direction and you stop, what happens? Rather quickly. The reason this is significant is because when you turn your back on God, you do not stop. You do not stay in one place. You're stopping and that people mover, Satan's people mover, moves you farther and farther from God. And all of a sudden you wake up one day and you are so far out there, you don't even know who God is. You wouldn't know him if he walked up and, and kissed you on the cheek. You do not stay in one place whenever you are a Christian. You're moving forward or you're moving away from God. And then the last thing he said is, I disappoint you. I let you down. And he said, God says, you were never holding me up. The thimble full of ocean water doesn't hold the ocean up. And, and you saying to God, God, I let you down. God's like, wait, wait, wait. I uphold you with my victorious, righteous right hand. You got it all wrong, my child. You don't hold me up. I hold you up. This is significant. And here's the verse he quoted. Um, he says, for we are God's masterpiece. How many of you feel like a masterpiece today? Whether you feel like it or not, God has declared that you are his masterpiece. Now, here's the deal. Look what it says. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, created us anew, meaning, meaning when you don't know Christ or you're not allowing Christ to mold you and shape you, you are not his masterpiece. He creates you to look more like his son, created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Well, how does God create us anew? Well, through pain and suffering. And we don't like that. I've been reading this book. I finished it a while back, but I just wanted to read you a couple of things from Philip Yancey's disappointment with God. And, and this is very significant. Listen to this. He says, once a friend of mine went swimming in a large lake at dusk. He was paddling at a leisurely pace about, about 100 yards offshore. A freak evening fog rolled in across the water. Suddenly he, he could see nothing, no horizon, no landmarks, no objects or lights on shore. Because the fog diffused all light, he could not even make out the direction of the setting sun. For 30 minutes, he splashed around in panic. He would start off in one direction, lose confidence and turn 90 degrees to the right or the left. It made no difference which way he turned. 
He could feel his heart racing uncontrollably. He would stop and float, trying to conserve energy and force himself to breathe slower. Then he would uh, blindly strike out again. At last, he heard a, a faint voice calling from the shore. He pointed his body towards that sound and followed it to safety. Something like that sensation of utter lostness must have settled in on Job as he sat in the rubble and tried to comprehend what had happened. He too had lost all landmarks, all points of reference. Where should he turn? God, the one who could guide him through the fog, was silent. The whole point of the wager, uh, Yancey calls it a wager. He says it's a bet. When God and, and Satan were talking, God says, consider my servant Job. Yancey calls it a wager. The whole point of the wager was to keep Job in the dark. If God had delivered an inspiring pep talk, do this for me, Job, as a knight of the faith, then Job would have suffered gladly. But Satan challenged whether Job's faith could survive with no outside help or explanation. When God accepted those terms, the fog rolled in around Job. God ultimately won the wager, of course, though Job lashed out with a stream of bitter complaints, and though he despaired of life and longed for death, still he defiantly refused to give up on God. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him, Job said. Job believed when there was no reason to believe. He believed in the midst of the fog. Now listen to this. He says, Job stands as merely the most extreme example of what appears to be a universal law of faith. The kind of faith God values seems to develop best when everything fuzzes over, when God stays silent, when the fog rolls in. Uh, I want to give you some examples of this, and it comes from Hebrews chapter 11, which is called the Faith Hall of Fame. Because everybody listed here is somebody that, that you may have, if you've read the Bible, you're going to know some of them for sure. Um, but if you study the Bible, these are the heroes of the faith. But Yancey calls it not the Faith Hall of Fame. He calls it survivors of the fog. Because he says everybody that we're going to mention has at least one thing in common. And that is they went through a terrible time of testing, of silence from God when they did not know where to turn. Now remember that because the first portion I'm going to read you is all about success. These people had success. But everyone I'm going to mention in their name had a terrible time of testing before the success. Listen to this. This is Hebrews 11, starting in verse 32. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson and, Jephth Samson and Jephthah, and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Now that's awesomeness right there. Every one of them went through a time of testing, before their time of victory. And then there's this phrase. There were others. The people I'm about to read you about, there is no record in scripture of them ever having a victory in God's king, in pursuit of God. Barak, Samson, Jephthah, all of them had victories after testing. There were others who did not get victory. Listen to this. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. They thought that God would, would honor them more if they refused to renounce their faith in God. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. I want to be one that God says he had such a faith that this world was not worthy of him. Can you imagine what type of faith it would be for your heavenly father to say, this is one of my heroes of the faith. You don't get there by turning and running when you go through times of testing. 
They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. What he's saying is that, that uh, God knew there were gonna be other people come to Christ and we're not gonna, everything's not gonna be made right until everyone comes to Christ. And God knows when the last person comes to Christ. We don't know that. It may be this week, it may be 10 years from now, we don't know. But when the last person comes to Christ, Jesus will return and he's gonna start the process of making everything right. In the meantime, we have to hang on. God's favorites, especially God's favorites, are not immune to times of testing and times when, when, when God seemed silent, when the fog rolled in and they did not know what to do. They believed that God deserved trust regardless of the circumstances. Now, let me tell you about two kinds of faith real quickly. There's childlike faith, and these, these are a big deal. There's nothing wrong with childlike faith, but it cannot sustain you during difficult times. Childlike faith is extravagant faith that believes the impossible, and many times this is new believers that show this, like David when he went against Goliath. David was a young man. He went against Goliath. Incredible faith. Later, you were going to hear David has a, has a different type of faith. The Roman centurion, when he said to Jesus, don't even come to my house. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. He was a very new believer in Christ. When you're in the midst of the fog, though, childlike faith will not cut it. You need something like Job and everybody in Hebrews 11 had, and it's something I'm calling stubborn faith. Now, we talked about last week persevering faith. I'm calling it stubborn faith. Hang on at any cost faith. And to better understand the difference, I'm going to show you two Psalms from the Old Testament, both written by King David, and, and I want you to, to read these very, uh, during this week. One of them you know very, very well. One of them not so much. The first one is Psalm 23. You know this when You've heard it over and over. You hear it at funerals. You hear it when people are going through difficult times. Look what it says. Here's just a few phrases. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack what? Let me say that again. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack what? Remember that I lack nothing. He, God, the great shepherd guides me. I will fear no evil. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. He says he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies and I have good stuff. My cup overflows. Woo-hoo! Turn back one page to Psalm 22. Same writer. Listen to what he says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? I cry out by day, but you do not answer. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. Psalm 23, I lack nothing. Psalm 22, I have nothing. Same writer. Psalm 22, 23, childlike faith. Psalm 22, stubborn faith. And by the way, Psalm 22 is the one that is quoted more in the New Testament than almost any other Psalm, not 23. There's two different pictures here. In Psalm 23, green pastures, still waters. My cup overflows, love, mercy, follow me, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 22, there's no green pastures. There's no still water. There's no cup overflowing. He doesn't talk about love and mercy following him all the days of his life. You get down to verse 20 and 21, and David cries out this. He says, Deliver me, rescue me, save me, O God. And God does not save him, not at that moment. But it's like this light switch flipped, and in the midst of him crying out to God, he remembers, wait, 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 I have seen this before. I've seen it all throughout the Old Testament. He knew the Old Testament, the things written before his time. I've seen this before, and in the midst of terrible pain and suffering, we need to hold on. And look what he says. It's like, he says, I remember, I remember. I will declare your name to my people, even though you don't save me. 
In the assembly, I will praise you, even though you don't answer my prayers the way I want you to. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him. All you descendants of Israel. Why? Because I've seen it before. Because God always comes through. Even if he doesn't in my lifetime, he will come through and I'm going to hold on. It's a different type of faith. Philip Yancey says this. Human beings grow by striving, working, stretching, and in a sense, human nature needs problems more than solutions. You don't grow very often, very much, whenever you get everything you want. It's when God says no, or when you go through trials, that's when you're stretched, your faith becomes stronger. Now, I'm going to read you something else. This comes from C.S. Lewis. He's quoting C.S. Lewis, but this is, this is huge in my mind. In an essay on prayer, C.S. Lewis suggested that God treats new Christians with a special kind of tenderness, much as a parent dotes on a newborn. He quotes an experienced Christian. So C.S. Lewis is now quoting a Christian friend of his. I've seen many striking answers to prayer, more than, I, more than one I thought was miraculous. But they usually come at the beginning before conversion or soon after it. As the Christian life proceeds, they tend to be rarer. The refusals, too, are not only more frequent, they become more unmistakable, more emphatic. So the no becomes more emphatic. Everybody knows God's telling you no. At first glance, such a suggestion seems to have it all backward. Shouldn't faith become easier, not harder, as a Christian progresses? But as Lewis points out, the New Testament gives two strong examples of unanswered prayer. Jesus, the most famous person in the Bible, God told him no when he prayed three times, if it is possible, let this cup re be removed from me. The second most famous person in the New Testament is Paul. Paul prayed three times, Lord, please take this thorn in the flesh away from me. God said no. Lewis asks, does God then forsake just those who serve him best? Well, he who served him best of all said near his tortured death, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When God becomes man, Jesus, that man of all others is least comforted by God at his greatest need. Listen to this. He says, there is a mystery here, which even if I had the power, I might not have the courage to explore. Meanwhile, little people like you and me, if our prayers are sometimes granted beyond all hope and probability, we had better not draw hasty conclusions to our own advantage. He's saying, if you have your prayers answered, God done something miraculous, don't think that there's anything really great about you, because here's what he says. If we were stronger, we might be less tenderly treated. If we were braver, we might be sent with far less help to defend far more desperate ports in the great battle. If you had more faith, God might put you at a more strategic point to change history. Wow. So let me tell you two facts about faith you need to understand. First is stubborn faith means more to God than we can possibly comprehend. God gets to decide what's valuable to God. The little thimble doesn't say, hey, God, you should change your whole course of history and, and you should pay attention to what I want because I'm a baby and I need that. And God says, wait, 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 wait. I'm God, you're not. I will do what I choose to do because I'm God. When you call him Lord, that's a capital L and you follow him. See, when God gave humans the freedom to choose, stubborn faith, persevering faith became the number one thing that God searched for, and he does not find it. This should be normal in followers of Christ. It is, it is crazy not normal, unnormal, unnatural. I don't know. This should be what followers of Christ look like, but we don't. Second, and this is a distinguishing mark of Christianity. I'm always telling you, 
What makes Christianity different? There is no other religion in the world who does this. The God himself does not exempt himself from the same demands of faith he puts on you. There is no other. I I dare you, I double dog dare you to study world religions, come up with another founder of any religion, even another God. All roads don't lead to God. There's one God and that one God descended from heaven, became a man, took our sins. He's the only one. And look what it said about him in Hebrews chapter five. While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a, loud, with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. He could rescue him from death, but he didn't. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. If Jesus, God's son, learned obedience through suffering, where, how do you think you're going to learn obedience? It's through suffering. In this way, God qualified him. In what way? Through suffering. God qualified him as the perfect high priest and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. Jesus prayed, God, please deliver me. And God did not deliver him. He could have saved him, but he didn't. Now, when you study the Bible, you get to the New Testament. The New Testament writers completely changed the way they view pain and suffering. In the New Testament, you don't hear people railing against God like Job did, the, the prophets, David in the psalm, my God, my God, why have you? You don't hear that in the New Testament other than, than Jesus because the New Testament writers, they don't even explain pain. They point to two events as if they changed everything, the death and resurrection of Jesus because they change everything. The apostles based their entire faith of what happened on Easter when God turned the worst event in history, the death of his son, on what we now call Good Friday, he turned it into a glorious victory. So glorious that we call it Good Friday. The most horrible Friday in history, God made Good Friday. See, the disciples learned by staring at the cross what they did not learn in three years of staring at the physical Jesus. And that's this. Never equate God's silence with his absence because when God appears to be dead, he may just be coming back to life. Now there's a cycle that I want you to apply and and I'm gonna call it the suffering cycle. You can apply this cycle to any time in your life that you face pain and suffering. Apply this. First thing is tragedy. You will face tragedy. It's gonna happen. Over an 18-month period in our life, my, my nephew was killed by a gunshot wound. A year and a day after my nephew was, was killed, we buried my mom, my dad, and my sister. A few months after that, um, the, attempted suicide. There was, there was a time when the fog rolled into my life, and I didn't know which way was up. I didn't know where to go. And had it been left to me, I would not have turned my back on God, but I would not be preaching today. Some friends came and, and, and from this church came and surrounded us and prayed with us and, and brought us through it. And you wouldn't know today from looking at us that we'd gone through this inte- terrible, incredible time of pain and suffering. Tragedy, if it hadn't come to you, it's coming. It's just the way the world works. The world's broken. It's groaning until Jesus makes it right. You're going to have tragedy. You're going to have it. And then because you have tragedy, the next part, darkness. I, I, I will not turn my back on God, but I, I almost walked away from the church I, because I said, I can't possibly lead a church when all of this stuff has happened to me. And people said, are you kidding? More people are going to listen because that's happened to you. And you stayed faithful. I didn't think about it like that. Now, this next step, this next part of the cycle will not happen for you if you walk away from God. Won't happen. You may, you may 
have some success in life. I mean, you may pay off your house, you may become CEO, you know. That's not what I'm talking about here. The cycle is tragedy, then darkness, because you think about it, Jesus died on Good Friday, tragedy. Darkness, he didn't talk the whole Saturday. The disciples were like, our world is gone, it's over. Third, third part of it is triumph. Because how their world was rocked on Sunday morning when the tomb was empty. When the women came back and they said, Jesus is alive. What? I don't even understand. The only way your tragedy is turned into triumph is if you refuse to turn your back on God. And then he will do something that will change the course of history. Can you imagine walking the streets of gold someday? And somebody you don't even know walks up and says, I'm in the kingdom of God because during your tragedy, during your darkness, you held on and God turned that into a triumph. I'm here today in the kingdom of God because of your testimony. That's what I mean by triumph. You, you hold on and it changes history because people are watching. It matters the way we go through darkness. Easter Sunday showed us that in the end, suffering will not win. Good Friday doesn't tell us the why, doesn't tell us why pain and suffering, but it says that pain and suffering are so real that God decided to take it on himself, to endure it himself. God is acquainted with grief. And, and on the day that Jesus looked to God and God was silent and he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was Psalm 22 he quoted, not Psalm 23. But God turns it all around and brings victory. That's why James, the verse we looked at last week from James, that's why James can say, consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kind. Because you know that the testing of your faith will develop perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you might be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If you do not let perseverance, stubborn faith, finish its work, you will be lacking something. So what do you do? We've been asking this question for six weeks now. In the meantime, what do you do when you're stuck? In the meantime, you pursue redeemed suffering. What is redeemed suffering? It means God turns something good from your, from your tragedy. Suffering with a purpose. Redeemed suffering leads to maturity, wisdom, stubborn faith, perseverance, character, opportunities to comfort others, and rewards that God hasn't even told us about yet that are gonna happen in the future. A horrible Friday became Good Friday because Jesus rose from the dead on Easter Sunday. And one day, one day, what Jesus did on Sunday by turning the greatest tragedy into triumph, he will apply on a cosmic scale to the universe. There will be a day when everything will be made right, but that's not today. In the meantime, I pursue redeemed suffering. We're going to take the Lord's Supper in just a second. I thought this was a great time to do it. The Lord's Supper is for Christians. You don't have to be a church member. You just have to be a Christ follower. When you take the Lord's Supper, there's a couple of things you need to be aware of. First of all, God says, do not approach the Lord's table, table in an unworthy manner. That means if there's sin in your life, if you're openly living in sin, don't you dare come to the table because you will be judged, not by me, but by God. He says, if there's sin, you need to confess that sin. He said, if you are in a relationship that's jacked up and you know it's jacked up, you don't come to the Lord's table. You go and you make that right, then you come to the Lord's table. Now, it also says in Romans that if, if, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That means if you've tried to make peace with somebody and they will not make peace with you, that's on them. That's not on you. You come to the Lord's table. But he says on the night that he was 
before he was crucified, he stood up at their last, at, at, the, at the last supper. He took a piece of bread. It's, it's symbolic. He took a piece of bread. He broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. He took the cup and he said, this is my blood spilled for you. And it's all symbolic. Now here's the thing. Whenever the disciples at that meal took the cup and they took the bread and they drank it, they were saying, we accept everything that you are going to put in front of us, God. We accept your life and we give you our lives in return. That's what the Lord's Supper means. Now, if you're confessed up, if you're in right relationship with God and with others as, as far as you can be, and you understand that when every time you take the Lord's Supper, you're saying, I accept whatever you want to put in my little thimble. I accept it, God. I accept your life and I give you my life in return. Then come to the Lord's Supper. We're going to put on uh, Jeremy Camp's song and it's, it's got the lyrics, there will be a day. I just thought that was a great thing. There will be a day with no more pain, no more suffering. That's not today. But in the meantime, we're going to take the Lord's Supper and we're going to celebrate a horrible Friday that became a good Friday. So you may need to pray. You may need to, to spend some time as long as it takes. We're going to offer the Lord's table. There's one here, one here. There's one in the back. And, and when... This is going to be the last thing. When you take the Lord's Supper, where I'm just going to ask you to leave quietly because we're going to have some music playing. Uh, there were folks in here praying after the first service for quite a bit. So when, we, when this song starts, you're welcome to come to the table, but do it in the right way. Pray, come to the table, and then please leave quietly because we don't know how long God is going to be doing business in here. We'll play this video, and then we've got a lot of songs that will just play after that. You do what you need to in the presence of God before you accept the Lord's Supper and before you leave this place.